Amazing. <laughs> I, so I love that song. I love that whole record. That's Stevie Wonder talking book. Uh, one of the main reasons, if we're being honest, that we played that song is because it's Halloween tomorrow. And that song's just like Halloween-y, uh, which is a word I promise never to use again after this weekend. Um, but we played it because it rocks, and it, it's, it's Halloween season and all that stuff. But it's also perfect because it actually plays into what I want to talk about today. Because today, I want to talk about superstitions for a little bit. Right? Superstitions are strange, strange beliefs. Right? Like, so it's playoff season for, for baseball. I'm a massive baseball fan. Any other baseball fans out here? Nice. OK, sweet. I feel like it's the dying sport, but like I'm hanging on. Love baseball. If you know anything about baseball, you know that these are very superstitious dudes, right? They're not a little stitious. They're superstitious. Um, it's a joke I stole from the office. Um, they, they refuse to wash uniforms if they're on a winning streak. They eat the same meal before games. They won't step on foul lines. They got all these weird beliefs like like Roger Clemens, one of, the, one of the greats, like before every home game that he pitched, he'd go to Monument Park and touch the Babe Ruth plaque for good luck, every single home game. Uh, Wade Boggs had really specific stuff. So every time Boggs played an evening game, he demanded that he take batting practice at exactly 5.17 p.m., not a minute earlier, not a minute later, and he had to field 150 grounders, not one more, not one less. Just superstitious. Uh, my favorite baseball superstition is Mark McGuire, all right? Mark McGuire, for, get ready, for the entirety of his major league career, he wore the same cup that he used in high school. Yeah, we, yeah which means that he wore the same cup basically every single day for like over 20 years. That's not a fact that you came to church to learn, but it's one that you'll need to forget before lunch today. Um, superstitions are just strange beliefs, right? Like, uh, a broken mirror means seven years of bad luck, and a black cat means bad luck, but a rabbit foot means good luck, and, and you know, don't step on the crack or it'll break your grandma's back. That's one that, as a kid, I straight up, I believed it. I thought it was science. <laughs> like, I would walk to the playground in, like, states of sheer panic <laughs> that the responsibility I carried. Superstitions are just strange beliefs. And, and they're strange to everyone except for the people who believe in them, which is the definition of a superstition. A superstition is any belief or practice considered by non-practitioners, people who don't believe in it or practice it, to be based on irrational assumptions. And what's interesting is that by that definition, many people view Christians as having superstitious beliefs. Like what we believe is just irrational or, or maybe just out of date or maybe flat out crazy. Right? And because people don't understand it, sometimes they'll just outright ridicule us or criticize a Christian for believing what they believe. And that's actually what I want to talk about today, because that's what Peter talks about in the last few verses of 1 Peter chapter 3. He talks about, like, what are, we, what are we supposed to do as Christians if our faith gets dismissed or even, like, outright ridiculed and criticized? Like, how are we supposed to respond to that? And, and to talk about this idea, Peter's going to give us three examples of three different people who are ridiculed for what they believe in. And so we're going to read through these verses and read through these three examples of people who are ridiculed for their faith, and we'll kind of unpack it as we go. But today's going to be pretty convicting, or at least it's pretty convicting for me, so buckle up. 
All right, we're going to back up one verse, even though Jim covered it last week, but it's going to help give us context for today. So if you're following along in your Bible or on the app or whatever, we're going to start in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, which goes like this. Peter says, it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is a recurring theme all throughout the letter. Peter says, there's going to be times where you suffer for doing something good or you suffer for having faith, but that's better than suffering for doing something wrong or suffering for not having faith. We've talked about that so many times over the last few months that hopefully for most of us, that's like pretty familiar for us, right? But that's our context for the next few verses. Peter's in the middle of talking about suffering for doing something good or for having faith. Then he gives us three examples of people who suffered and were ridiculed for believing what they believed. And the first example he gives us is Jesus. All right, picking up in verse 18, Peter says this. He goes, for Christ also suffered once for sins, and he suffered for the the righteous and the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And to do that, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. All right, so Peter reminds us that Jesus suffered for his faith. And in fact, Jesus was only put like put to death in the flesh, like Peter talks about, because people thought he was crazy. And people thought he was crazy because Jesus made outrageous claims about what he was and what he believed. He claimed he was the son of God. And he claimed that the only access you and I could get to God would come through him. And he claimed to be the Messiah and the savior of the entire world. And he claimed that he was the only one who held the keys to a good and better and abundant life. And maybe craziest of all, he claimed that he would be killed. And then three days later, God would resurrect him from the dead. Those are divisive things to say, still divisive today. You either believe what he said, and you put all your faith in him, or you think he's crazy. Jesus was murdered because of what he claimed to be and what he claimed to believe. And he was ridiculed the whole way to the cross. He was mocked and spit on, and he was beaten, and he was hung out literally to dry on a cross like a common criminal. He was dismissed. No one believed him. Even his disciples ran off in the end. So so listen, no one shared in Jesus's belief in the promise of God, the the promise that as crazy as it sounds, God was going to deliver Jesus from death in order to save the world. But then he died. And what happened three days later? He's resurrected and he changes the course of world history from that point on. And here's the main point in all three examples that Peter begins driving at with Jesus. The point is that in the end, Jesus' faith, even though people thought he was crazy for it, Jesus' faith was vindicated, which means that what Jesus claimed to believe was proven to be true. And in the end, God did not let Jesus down because he kept his promise to deliver Jesus from death. Right? That's the, the first example that Peter gives us of someone who was ridiculed for their faith. It's Jesus. And now here's the second example that, that Peter gives us. It's Noah, like Noah's Ark, Noah. But before we read these verses, I've got to give you a heads up. All right? There is an idea in this verse that is confusing and mysterious. All right? You're going to see it when we read it. It's this idea of the spirit of Jesus preaching to imprisoned spirits from Noah's day and age. And I'm going to tell you right off the bat, 
No one really knows what Peter's talking about. I don't either. Right? And that'll just happen sometimes when you read the Bible, like you'll come across something that you have no idea what to do with, and it's okay to just let it stay mysterious. That's what we're going to do today. That little part, we're going to let it stay mysterious. In fact, this, this part about the spirit of Jesus preaching to those in prison in the days of Noah, not even Martin Luther knew what in the world Peter was talking about. Like Martin Luther, who wrote the 95 Theses, and he was the first to translate the Bible into common language so that common people could understand it. Seminal figure of the Protestant Reformation, which is the only reason some of us aren't Catholics right now. Like that Martin Luther, here's what he said about this verse. He said, what a wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty what Peter means. Translation, when it comes to this next part, even Martin Luther was like, yeah, I don't know. I got nothing. So that's what we're going to do too when we read it. Um, but that's fine. I'll read it to you anyway, and then we can get to the part that we do understand. All right. So picking up in verse 18, Peter says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous and the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. But in what spirit? Well, next part, the same spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. But no idea what that means. We'll go to the next part, which we do understand. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, like that's eight persons, were brought safely through the water. All right, so Remember, Peter is giving us our second example of someone who was ridiculed for what they believed in, ridiculed for their faith, and it's Noah. No Noah is the guy that God told to build a massive boat because he was going to flood the earth and he wanted to preserve a remnant of humanity. And Noah is the dude who built that boat in an age when floods weren't a thing because rain wasn't a thing yet. And so Noah had to have been absolutely ridiculed by people. His friends and his neighbors going like, dude, what are you building like, well, what do you believe in? What, like, what is a flood and what is rain? Like, Noah, do you and your God have lost your minds? But Noah stuck with it and he kept his faith and he believed in the promise from God. Like the promise that as crazy as it sounds, God was going to deliver his family from destruction. And what happened? Oh, one day it starts to rain and then the earth starts to flood and Noah and seven of his other family members, they jump into this boat and they're saved. And just like Jesus, in the end, Noah's faith is vindicated, which means what he said he believed in was proven to be true. And in the end, God did not let Noah down because he kept his promise to deliver his family from destruction. All right, we're going to look at Peter's third example, final, final example of someone who's ridiculed for their faith, and then we'll kind of unpack, like, what does any of this mean for us today in 2022? But Peter's third and final example is interesting because his third example is you. He says there's this in verse 21. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. And this all happens through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's confusing language, but, but basically what Peter's saying is that baptism, what baptism represents or corresponds to is having the same kind of faith that Jesus had and the same kind of faith that Noah had. It's the kind of faith where you trust in the promises of God, even if the entire world thinks you're crazy for it. 
And he reminds us that that kind of faith is what saves or delivers us from separation from God. All right, we'll finish this chapter. Peter wraps up by reminding us that all of this is made possible through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and he's at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. And that's the end of 1 Peter chapter 3. It ends with, with Peter reminding us that the world might think you're crazy for what you believe in, and they might, they might ridicule you, but even though the world is like maybe pointing a finger in your chest and laughing at you, he reminds you that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, and he's pointing his finger at you, and he's saying, they are with me, and I have delivered them, and I will keep my promises to them. Peter's reminding us that just like Jesus and just like Noah, our faith as crazy as it might sound to some people, will be vindicated. There will be a day when everything that we've claimed to believe will be proven to be true. He's reminding us that in the end, God will not let us down because he will keep his promise to deliver us. And that's one takeaway for today. Right, the, the takeaway is to hang on to that in, encouragement, right? It's, it's the same encouragement that Paul said in, in a different book of the Bible called Philippians. And he said it a little differently, but here's how Paul said it. He said, therefore, God has highly exalted him, him is Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, he's king to the glory of God the Father. In, in other words, there is this day coming when every soul who has ever lived on this earth will finally confess that, yes, Jesus is exactly who he said he was. He's the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of humanity, and the King. Christians are just people whose knees have already bowed and tongues have already confessed that truth. All right, so that's, that's one takeaway for today. It's to hang on to this encouragement from Peter, all right? If I were to sum up all the like, confusing language in those verses that we just read and sum it up in my own words, his encouragement is, don't let the haters get you down, your faith will be vindicated. That's the <laughs> Ben Foote message version of that verse. All right, so that's one takeaway for today. But it's not what I wanna focus on right now. It's not what I wanna zoom in on for the rest of our time together. Instead, I wanna zoom in on something a little more convicting. I want, I want to focus on the assumption that Peter is working off of, not only in these verses, but even in the, the verses that come before it, the verses that Jim taught last weekend. To, to remind you, Jim taught 1 Peter 3, 14 through 15, which goes like this. Peter says, even if you should suffer, be ridiculed or criticized for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed and have no fear of them. That's the haters. <laughs> Don't fear the haters. Don't be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. See, in those verses, Peter says that some people will be drawn toward you. They'll just be drawn to you. And they're like, they want to ask questions about why your life is so different. They're interested. And then in the verses after that, the ones that we covered today, Peter says that other people are just going to outright criticize you and ridicule you because you're living differently. But you might have already noticed the assumption that Peter is working off of. His assumption is that Christians are living lives that are radically different from the rest of the world. In other words, Peter's assumption is that followers of Jesus stand 
out. To keep using the uh, Noah metaphor that, that Peter uses, just, just like Noah used God's detailed blueprint in order to build a boat that would deliver his family from destruction, Peter is assuming that you and I, like Christian people, are building our lives on Jesus's blueprint to build lives that will deliver us from destruction. And not just destruction from like sin and death and separation from God, but we also believe it'll deliver us from destruction of like a diseased marriage or a warped identity or the isolation of shame or the bondage of fear and worry, you name it. Like we believe we're building a better life based on Jesus's blueprint. Peter's assumption is that followers of Jesus stand out because we're living differently from everyone else. He doesn't even take the time to write about it because he just assumes that you and I are doing that. Peter's assumption is based off of Jesus's own words, right? Jesus told us, he commanded us to build a standout life based on his blueprint. This is how he ends his famous Sermon on the Mount. This sermon is, we talk about it all the time here at Flatirons. You know, Jesus's longest sermon, his most famous sermon. This is the sermon where Jesus unpacks like how the kingdom of God functions and operates. And he gives us a blueprint for how to build our lives. And the sermon goes from Matthew chapter five all the way through Matthew chapter seven. And at the end of chapter seven, at the very end of Jesus's sermon on the Mount, after explaining his blueprint for life to us, he says this. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine, right, what words? These, these words are the words from his sermon, the words in Matthew 5 through 7. He goes, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And, but on the other hand, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Jesus ends his famous sermon by telling us a parable, like a story about one storm that hits one neighborhood and one man's house, his life stays standing. One man's house, his life falls with a great crash. And the difference between the two men's foundations wasn't that they heard and understood Jesus's blueprint for life. They both heard and understood it. Instead, the only difference between the two men's lives is that one person heard Jesus's blueprint and he did what Jesus said to do and the other person did not. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that believing in and understanding and sitting in church and going like, "Mm, that's good, brother, preach. Like believing in his blueprint for life and understanding it is not enough to deliver you from the storms that you're gonna face in this life. Instead, only believing in and then actually building your life on Jesus's blueprint, actually doing what he said to do Only that creates a storm-proof life. And having a storm-proof life in an age of storms like we live in today is a standout life. See, Peter's assumption in the verses that we read today is that you and I have taken seriously the command at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The assumption is that you and I are already wise builders. We're building every aspect of our lives on Jesus' 
blueprint, and so we stand out. Peter's assumption, again, is that followers of Jesus stand out. And this is the question that I believe we should ask ourselves and answer honestly today. And before I even ask it, I want you to hear me. I'm asking myself this question as much as I'm asking anyone else, right? Every now and then I have these messages that I'll write and prepare, and this is one of them. It's like these messages where I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to anybody else. But here's the question that I'm asking myself. I think it's worth it to ask yourself. We'll personalize it. The question is, am I living with standout faith? And what I mean by that is like, is there anything different about me? Am I a wise builder? Is my life built on Jesus's blueprint? Is my life built on rock? And a way of thinking through this question would be this. When storms hit my life, does my life stay standing more than the next guy's? And here's why that's a sobering question, for me at least. All right, something I've been thinking about for the last couple of years. There are people smarter than me who have written about this, but here's why I think that's a sobering question. It's because during COVID, there was something kind of gross that was revealed or exposed in the lives of many Christians, myself included. All right, I'm preaching to myself right now. But what was exposed was that when the world saw a crisis, when, when the storm hit, for the most part, Christians reacted and fell with a great crash just as much as and in the same way as everyone else. Not you, of course, just everyone else in the room, but <laughs> it's sobering to think about. A lot of us, our, our lives washed away as much as the next person's. And here, here's what I mean by that. Remember, Jesus said that we could have a storm-proof life if we build our lives on the words from Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. So I'm just going to reference those three chapters right now. But let's be honest, honest with ourselves. Even though in Matthew 5, Jesus says that getting angry with someone else and calling someone else a fool is just as heinous in the kingdom of God as murder, and even though 22 verses later, he said that we should love everyone, even including our enemies, in 2020, many of us became just as bitter and angry and argumentative as the next person. And we got angry at people for not wearing masks, and we got angry at people for wearing masks, and we dug deeper trenches on whatever end of the political aisle that you find yourself on, and we dug deeper trenches and we took shots at the other side. And even though in Matthew 7, 1 through 5, Jesus says that as his people, we are not supposed to walk around and judge someone else for having sawdust in their eyes, while meanwhile, we're walking around with a whole two by four sticking out of our face, even though he said that, we were as quick as the next person to judge people for their beliefs and opinions and approach to the pandemic. How about this? E even though in Matthew 6, 1 through 4, Jesus tells us to be selfless and generous and to give to anyone who is in need and to do it without an ounce of pride or an ounce of self-righteousness, even though he said to live that way, we fought and wrestled over the last package of toilet paper in Target just as much as the next person. <laughs> And we circled the wagons and we focused on number one, just like everyone else did. Here's a real sobering thought. 
Even though in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, Jesus said the people who follow him, like Christians, like church, is going to be this, the light of, of the world. And our light, light is going like to shine so brightly into the darkness that people are going to flock to it, and they're, and they're going to run to it, and they're going to give God glory for it. Even though he said that, when the world got dark in 2020, like statistically speaking, not many people flocked to the worldwide church for light. That even includes Christians. Like many of us took a break from the whole church thing because it's like, oh, it's just online anyway. And we didn't flock there for light. Instead, we flocked to the voting booths as much as the next person. And we bought into the idea that hope for the world would come through proper policy. And so as long as this party or that party could get their person in office, then finally light would be restored to the world. And here's something even crazier. Even now, in 2022, after COVID has kind of simmered down a little bit and died down, at least compared to 2020, still now today, most Christians have still not like come back to church to like gather and rally together on a weekly basis as a community of Jesus followers. In fact, according to a recent study done by a group called Barna Group, uh, they, they learned that one out of three practicing Christians, and in this, for this study, a practicing Christian is anyone who said that uh, faith in Jesus was important to them. They said that one out of three practicing Christians came back to church, and that's it. And we've seen that here at Flatirons. Uh, we're more than one out of three, but there's like 4,000 people who just never came back. That's one out of three. Uh, the study showed that another one out of three watch exclusively online now, and, and most of these people digitally church hop. So they'll like watch Flatirons one week, they'll watch a different church another week, they just kind of jump around. And I'm not trying to take a dig at our online community right now. People watching online are like, I take offense to this. It's like, I'm not trying to dig on you. Um, I think one thing that you'd have to be aware of, one risk would be that if you were to treat church like no longer as a community of people you belong to, but instead like a piece of content that you consume. So the study said that was one out of three as another one out of three. And then here's the one that bums me out. The study showed that the last one out of three professing Christians just do neither anymore. They, they don't go to church. They don't watch online. And the most popular reason for why they do neither, according to the study, is because they claim that, quote, attending a church added no value to my life. And here's my point to all this. You're like, what is, why are you bringing all this up? Here's my point. Whether we admit it or not, the world is watching us. And by us, I specifically am singling out people who follow Jesus right now. And they were really watching us during COVID. And when the storm hit during COVID, unfortunately, what they saw was that most of us responded and reacted just like every other person in the world. And then on top of that, after the storm settled, they saw that at least 33% of us, arguably somewhere between 33% and 66% of us, like don't even want to hang out with each other anymore. And it's hard to argue with someone if they were to say, why would I go out of my way to follow Jesus if it sure seems like there's nothing different about his followers and they can't even get along with each other? I saw a meme the other day, and I think it's one that kind of sums up what I'm talking about, and it sums up, unfortunately, 
other people's perception of Christians. It was one of those memes that I saw it and I started with belly laughing. And then a couple of minutes later, I was just like groaning and filled with sadness. And so it's okay if you respond the same way, but here's the meme. This is the Sunday lunch crowd, 30 minutes before verbally assaulting an 18 year old waitress. See, it just got really awkward in here (laughs) because the joke and the pretty damning critique of Christians is that some of us will raise our hands at church and we'll sing loudly and we'll shout amen and we talk about how we want to love other people just like Jesus loved us. And then 30 minutes later, we'll chew out the waitress at Chili's because our queso is lukewarm. And here's what's interesting to me. It's that, again, the world is watching us. They're watching Christians. And what's interesting to me is that they are watching us for the same exact reasons that Jesus said they would be watching us. They are looking for light. They're looking for the same thing that Peter said they'd be looking for. They're looking for us to stand out, to be different in some way. Here's what I mean, and pay attention to this, because when I first realized this, it kind of blew my mind. It might blow your, your mind too, but pay attention. Start paying attention to culture's criticism of Christianity. And if you do, you'll see that typically speaking, you know, not all the time, but typically speaking, our culture isn't frustrated with Christians for being different. Instead, most often, our culture is frustrated with Christians for not being as different as we claim to be. Let that sink in. That should be convicting. It's convicting for me, at least. That's the whole point of the meme. Right? The, the criticism isn't that Christians make for standout customers at restaurants. The criticism is that Christians are no different from the grumpy people sitting in the booth next to them. And culture would never phrase it this way, but technically culture is criticizing us for not building our lives on Jesus's blueprint. Because if we were to truly build our lives on like the radical countercultural blueprint that Jesus gave us in his Sermon on the Mount, like What would the world have to complain about? That's criticism, let's be honest, that we never or very rarely get, right? Like, oh, those Christians, they always bring so much light and hope to the world, (laughs) right? Every single one that I meet, they're just merciful and patient and non-judgmental and selfless and generous and forgiving, and they bring peace into every single room that they walk into. And whenever they get married, they're so committed to each other. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And even though they love everyone and they live this way, they're never self-righteous about it. Like they're still somehow like totally down to earth people that are a good hang and fun to grab a beer with. I'm sick of them. Like, no, (laughs) pay attention because that's not culture's grievance with us. Instead, most often, their grievance is that we are just as rude, impatient, judgmental, angry, and hateful as the rest of society. Their grievance is that we also have leaders who have abused their power and blow up their lives just as dramatically and controversially as leaders in the secular world. In other words, our culture's typical complaint about Christians is that we are not different like we say that we claim we are. 
Remember, superstitions are, are beliefs that, that people find irrational because they don't actually change a person's life, right? So it, if actually not wearing your jersey would, would change whether or not a baseball team won games, we wouldn't call it a superstition. We call it superstitious because it doesn't actually change the outcome of the game. And culture's most typical criticism of us is that what we say we believe oftentimes doesn't appear to have actually changed the outcome of our lives because we look just like everyone else. They're upset with us because we aren't living up to the assumption that Peter makes based on the command that Jesus made, which is followers of Jesus stand out. And so here's where I want to land today. All right, some critiques that our culture has of Christianity are unfair. I know that, right? But that's not what we're talking about today. Instead, today we're talking about the criticism that culture has that we live no differently than anyone else. And that criticism is fair. They are right to criticize us for that. You see this all throughout the Bible and all throughout history. God will use people that don't believe in him to criticize and ridicule and hopefully open the eyes of the people who do believe in him. And so what if instead of getting hurt or angry at that criticism or like when we see that meme, instead of getting hurt and angry, what if we were to humble ourselves by taking that criticism to heart and allowing it to challenge us? maybe even changing because of it. And so here's the homework for this week, all right? It's for any of us who are like, I wanna start living differently. I wanna try to stand out as a light in a dark world. Here's the homework. It's just to follow Jesus's command, which is to hear these words of mine and do them. And, and there's, here's how we can do that in an easy way. Step one, read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. It's worth your time, all right? Read Matthew 5 through 7. This is the blueprint for our lives. This is the blueprint that you and I are supposed to be building every single aspect of our lives on so that when the storm hits, not only do we stay standing, but we stand out. So read the Sermon on the Mount. And then the other part of the homework is pick one area of life from that sermon where you are going to begin standing out. This is the whole hear these words of mine and also do them thing that Jesus was talking about. Start small, pick one area of life that Jesus talks about in his sermon that you're like, as crazy as it sounds, I'm gonna try to live that way. This sermon covers everything. You'll have more than enough options to pick from. Listen, the assumption that Peter's working on in those verses based on the command that Jesus gave us is that followers of Jesus stand out. I'm ready to live that way. I wanna live more that way. And here's, here's what's, Totally crazy. If, if we were to do what Jesus said to do in the first place, which is build our lives on his blueprint for life, then all these wonderful things would happen. But one of the many results would be that we would also start living up to the expectation that culture has from us. The expectation that we're like standout neighbors and, and bosses and employees and teachers and students and parents and spouses and, and kids. And yes, we're even like standout Chili's customers. <laughs> My question is like, what could begin to change if you and I changed? Like us, Flatirons Community Church. Because you, so we don't have a lot of power over getting to sway like the worldwide opinion of Christianity, but you and I have a lot of power to sway what Denver, Colorado thinks about those orange sticker people. 
And that's the vibe that I've been getting lately from this community in the first place. It's this vibe of like, hey, after the last two years, like, we're ready to jump in. Like, let's just do this thing. I want to do what Jesus said to do. I want to live differently. I want to stand out. Because there's a really good work to be done in the world. And, that, and that's how I want to end right now. As, as I pray and we sing this one last song, we march out into a new week and we march out into a new month. What I, what I want in our minds is the reminder that there's like a really good work to be done in Colorado. And we believe that Jesus entrusted that work to us. And if all of us working together could like take seriously the command to build our lives on the blueprint that Jesus offered, then maybe over time we would get to see things change. Like homes would change and schools would change and neighborhoods would change and businesses would change, like lives would change. And maybe one of the things that would change would be the criticism because there would be just like nothing left to criticize because we would be at least one massive community of Jesus followers who stood out and shine as bright lights in a world that's really dark. So let's pray. God, um, this truth is super convicting. Um, makes us uncomfortable at first, makes us feel awkward, but God, I, ultimately I thank you for this convicting truth. God, I, I pray for the discernment it takes to like weigh through the criticism that we get from people and the discernment to like throw away the stuff that's unfair and throw away the stuff that shouldn't affect our lives, but also the discernment to like look at people's criticism of how we're living our lives and discern what's fair and what are they right to criticize about. And God, would you give us the humility it takes to like listen to that and be challenged by it and begin to grow. God, would you give us the courage that it takes to live standout lives, to like look different, to shine as light in the middle of a really dark world? Would you give us the courage to listen to you and not only listen to you, but to do what you said? And then God, ultimately, as we sing this very last song, God, I pray that you would remind us that like your Sermon on the Mount, which is so incredible, like this blueprint that you gave us for how to live our lives, you didn't just give it to us as like a pass or fail exam. And he didn't give it to us like for rule following for the sake of rule following. You gave us this blueprint of life because you want to deliver us. You've already delivered us from sin and, and, and shame on the cross, but you also want to deliver us into here and today. You want to deliver us from diseased relationships and you want to deliver us from selfishness and greed and fear and anxiety. God, would you remind us that you are deliverer? And when we build on our lives on you, we are delivered. So God, as we sing this last song, would you remind us of that? And I pray this in the, the name of our ultimate deliverer, your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.